We are staying in the Psalms today. We're going to be in Psalm 137 and 138. Now, if you remember, last week when we were in Psalm 136 and 137, I made a general statement, and I said, the Psalms from here on out are going to focus on praising God from, from 136 to 150. Well, we've got an exception right out of the, right out of the uh, shoot here. That's a generalization. Psalm 137 is different. It's an exception to that trend. In a summary of Psalm 137, Derek Kidner wrote, quote, Every line of it is alive with pain, whose intensity grows with each strophe to an appalling climax. Wow. Okay, this is different. Spurgeon, in his introduction of it, wrote this, It is a fruit of the captivity in Babylon. And often has it furnished expression for sorrows which else had been unutterable. So it's a mournful, it's a lamentation. Now we don't know for certain who the author is. Some people, the Septuagint claims that it was Jeremiah who wrote this, but we don't know. And it doesn't matter. And as a side trip, I got to take a couple side trips or it's just not normal, right? Many people will recognize the first line of this psalm. By the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept. And I thought, All right, I've heard that. I've heard that from other places. So I looked it up a little bit. And by the waters of Babylon was a post-apocalyptic short story by an American writer named Stephen Vincent Benet that was published July 31st, 1937. And it was adopted in 1971 into a one-act play called By the Waters of Babylon. Benet wrote the story in response to an April 25th, 1937 bombing of Guernica, which, in which a, fa a fascist military force destroyed the majority of a Basque town of Guernica in the Spanish Civil War. Now, I've never studied the Spanish Civil War, and I doubt if anybody here has studied the Spanish Civil War. Maybe one of you have. Picasso painted a picture of it. Picasso painted it. But I can't... I can't Tell what Picasso paints. <laughs> What's that? It's one of his famous early. Well, I'm gonna have to go look it up now. But in that in that war, um, the, the, he talks about in this in this short story a deadly mist and fire falling from the sky. It seems eerily. Uh, like the descriptions of the aftermath of a nuclear blast. And so a lot of people said he was talking about that. But the deadly mist couldn't be talking about a nuclear blast because there is no such thing as nuclear weapons in 1937. Or if there, I mean, they had no idea what would happen. However, the deadly mist may also refer to the chemical weapons that were used in World War I. Well, that makes a lot of sense particularly mustard gas. 
And that would have been a feared weapon that Benet's generation was very familiar with. So he wrote this short story. And I went out and actually listened to it. It's not very long. It's kind of a weird story. Um, it's not one that you go, whoopee, let's, let's you know, dance around and smile. Um, but if you want to listen to By the Waters of Babylon, I went out there on YouTube and it was, a guy was reading it and I just listened to it. And it was half hour long or so. So it's not a, not a long deal. Now, By the Rivers of Babylon is also, many of some of you might know this more, it's a song that was released in 1970 where the lyrics were taken right from Psalm 137 in the Rastafarian faith, which began in the 1930s in Jamaica. And we won't get into the Rastafarian faith, but it's not Christian, okay? And in the song, the term Babylon is used for any governmental system which is either oppressive or unjust. And it's a catchy little tune. Okay? But so a lot of people might start this song and go, oh, I, by the waters of Babylon. It, 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 something back in the recesses of your mind might kick forward. But they have nothing to do with this psalm. So it starts out in verse 1. Sad days. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Now, to begin with, some commentators think that the author was looking back to the mournful time of captivity in Babylon and that this was written after that was over. And others think it was written during the time of captivity. Either way, the message is the same. There's a lot to mourn. What is there to mourn? Well, we remembered Zion. It said, the national capital Jerusalem had been destroyed. Jerusalem was blown up by Nebuchadnezzar. That magnificent temple built during Solomon's reign, which was incredible, where the people saw the glory of the Lord and come and fill it in a spectacular way, had been destroyed. The promised land. One time that land, when they were going there, the, it was described as the land of milk and honey. Now it lay desolate. And the people who once lived in the kingdom of Judah, including Jerusalem, were now captives in a foreign land roughly 500 miles away. And the Babylonians were a very pagan, ungodly people. Despite its many wonders, because you know, Babylon was a, the wonder of the world, they worshipped pagan gods, and chief among them was Marduk, or Bel, as noted in Jeremiah 50, 32. Besides devotion to these false gods, sexual immorality was widespread in ancient Babylon. And while marriage was monogamous, a man could have one or more concubines. Kind of reminds me of another major religion today called Islam. Cult and temple prostitutes were common. Now, ironically, Babylon means the gate of God. And Babylon is mentioned 
prophetically in Scripture, most notably in Revelation. In Revelation 14.8, we read, Another angel, the second following, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Revelation 16.19 The city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. I just think about drinking the fury of the wrath of God. It kind of makes you shudder. Revelation 17.5 And on her forehead was written the name Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Revelation 18.1 And I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. And then verse 10 of 18. They stand afar off in fear of torment and say, Alas, alas, you great, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And then finally, in Revelation 18, 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This is God's judgment on Babylon, which is the 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 uh, nation. I'd say for the nation, it's 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 the kingdom of the Antichrist. And so we have that that Babylon has had this prophetic thing with Scripture, and we could take a long time to study those things, but we won't do it here. So when they sat down and wept they also remembered their homeland was gone and with that their national pride was stripped bare and I thought about all that happened to the nation you know and I struggled to come up with a comparison and then I then I I did and I, I'm thinking this and I don't know because I haven't really read but I was thinking about slaves who were captured and brought over from Africa from their homeland, I would have think they might have experienced a similar mourning. They knew they weren't ever going back. Everything was gone. I can't imagine the emotions of those people. I, I can't. And I think it would be very similar to what we have here in Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. In the beginning of his comments on this psalm, Matthew Henry observed the mournful posture they were in as to their affairs and their spirits. He said they were posted by the rivers of Babylon in a strange land, a great way from their own country, whence they were brought as prisoners of war. The land of Babylon was now a house of bondage to that people, as Egypt had been in their beginning. Spurgeon wrote, Everything reminded Israel of her banishment from the holy city, her servitude beneath the shadow of the temple of Bel, her helplessness under a cruel enemy, and therefore her sons and daughters sat down in sorrow. 
Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. But the remembrance of the temple of their God, the palace of their king, the center of their national life, quite broke them down. Destruction had swept down all their delights, and therefore they wept. When the beloved city of their solemnities came into their minds, they could not refrain from floods of tears. That's the start of Psalm 137. Then while then they were in this state, we see what's requested of them in verses 2 and 3. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there are captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us of the songs of Zion. Now, I don't know about you. I've been involved, been involved somewhat in music over the years, but it is difficult, really difficult to sing, especially a song of happiness when you're in the dumps. I've had to sing at a few funerals. I hate it. It's just hard to do. If you're in another room and you're not seeing all the people that are all, you know, down, that's one thing. But it's hard to sing when you're down in the dumps. Singing is done from within. It's done with emotion. Making this a very difficult request. In my mind, anyway. And then verse 4 summarizes their situation. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing a song of mirth in a foreign land? Now, we aren't told why they were asked to sing. Perhaps the Babylonian liked their songs of mirth. Some of the Jewish songs are really fun. Now, they were different back then, obviously. Now, mirth, I looked it up just to make sure I understood it well. It's gladness as shown or accompanied with laughter. So you're just, you're just having a fun song. It's, it's exciting. Perhaps they were asked to sing these songs as a further act of cruelty to remind them of what they lost, forcing them to remember even again. Either way, uh, maybe the Babylonians love to hear it. We don't know. But it was a difficult request. But notice in verse 2, they kept their instruments of merriment hanging up. They didn't destroy them. They didn't destroy their lyres. They kept them. There seems to be a hope that God will preserve them as a people. And if they knew the message from the Torah... In the Psalms that they had at that point, and the various prophets like Isaiah, they would have understood that God was not going to forget them and abandon them. Remember God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David? The kingdom will be forever. Well, if you really believe that, you're sitting in Babylon, you don't see a whole lot of kingdom stuff, except the Babylonian kingdom. So, that would eliminate, even though that's all you can see, that would eliminate Babylon as dealing the final blow to the Jewish people. So they, they, kept, they kept their instruments. They hung them up. And then in verse 5, 
they remember. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So even with with this, even with this request, where they are and being asked to sing, the writer remains steadfast in his remembering and honoring the Lord. The statements made in verses 5 and 6 are a way of forgetting that God will never let that happen. He's never going to let the nation go away, regardless of any current condition. He speaks about two parts of his body. This is interesting. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill and let the tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Well, if you were going to sing a song of mirth, what would you use? You'd use your right hand to play the lyre and you'd use your voice, your tongue, to sing. So he's saying these two things, they were asked to sing the songs of Zion. If I ever forget Jerusalem, let me never to sing or play again. So I'm going to remember Jerusalem. So then for more emphasis, he states that this is his highest joy. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So he is stating, I'm not going to forget. This is critical. This is important. One commentator wrote this. The godly could not forget Jerusalem and everything it stands for. The covenant, the temple, the presence and kingship of God the atonement, forgiveness, and reconciliation. They vowed never to forget God's promises and to preserve waiting for the moment of redemption. John Trapp, who lived in the 1600s, observed this about the Jewish people of, of, of his time. We don't know if it happened back then, same way might not have, but it's very interesting. He said the Jews at this day, this is in the 1600s, when they build a house, they are, say the rabbis, to leave one part of it unfinished and lying rude, in remembrance that Jerusalem and the temple are at present desolate. At least they used to leave about a yard square of the house unplastered, in which they write in great letters of this psalmist, If I forget you, Jerusalem, or in memory of the desolation. So they have this little spot in their house. Not finished. Some of you would drive you nuts. Okay, Others, you go, only one spot? <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> but um, to remember that Jerusalem is going to come back. Another thing to note, starting in verse 5, the pronouns move. Go to verse 2. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. And the very end of verse 3. Sing us one of the... No, no. And required of us songs in verse 3. But now in verse 5, if I forget you, let my right hand... So the pronouns are now singular. They were plural. This makes the pledge not to forget, forget a personal pledge. Not a national or a group pledge. 
You know, it's easier to pledge strength in numbers. We won't do that. It's a whole lot different when it becomes personal. I won't do that. It's also, as I was writing that, easy to state something that is a trait of believers in Christ. This is traits of believers in Christ. It becomes much more critical that that trait, that we love one another, for example. See, you say, believers in Christ love one another. It becomes a much more critical that trait being discussed is I love one another. Personalize it. And that's what they're doing here. Now, we as believers need to understand that this psalm is not to be reviewed just as a slice of history of the Jewish people. Frequently are told in scripture that the world will hate us couple verses Matthew 10 and 23 brother will deliver brother over to death this is Jesus talking and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in one town flee to the next and Matthew 24 9 to 14 They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end come in Romans 8 who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distresses or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughters slaughtered now we like the writer of Psalm 137 need to think are beyond our current plight both when it is good and especially when it is not. To an eternal perspective like the, the Apostle Paul stated in Second Corinthians 4, where he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So, as our world changes and as the world becomes more hostile to Christians, we need to be like the people, the, the person writing this. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, I will not forget. I will not forget the word of God and I will not forget the salvation in Jesus Christ. And then verses 7 to 9, as we end this psalm, is a call to remember what God has done. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they had said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So this is a call for God to remember. And remembering was a call for God to judge. 
God, remember? And guess what you did to the Edomites? Let's, we want you to judge. Now, the Edomites assisted Nebuchadnezzar in the capture of Jerusalem. When Nebuchadnezzar came to capture Jerusalem, they were there helping. The book of Obadiah tells us the judgment that's going to come to Edom because of those actions. They were rejoicing over the falling of Jerusalem into the hands of Babylon. Woohoo! Let's have a party. <clears throat> Jerusalem has fallen. In Obadiah 11 to 15. Now, you notice I didn't say Obadiah 1, 11 to 15. I could have, but there's only one chapter in Obadiah. Okay? It's not a long book. We read this, starting at verse 10, excuse me. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day your brother in the day of his fort of day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his distress in the day of his calamity. Do not loot the wealth in the day of his calamity. So they were doing some looting there too. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. They were stopping people from fleeing. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. Now, for your information, other judgments passed against Edom are found in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel and Joel and Amos. So Obadiah wasn't the only one. And there were also large prophecies made against Babylon in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and then in Revelation. And we read some of those about Mystery Babylon. And we can't be absolutely certain who Mystery Babylon is in today's world. There's lots of people that have, well, I think it's this and this and this and this. But we have clues to help. Babylon is an evil world system controlled by the Antichrist during the last days before Jesus' return. We know that. It also has religious connotations. Mystery Babylon does. Spiritual adultery with the beast being the focus of an ungodly end times religion. It's a fascinating study to undertake, but it'll take a while. And there's lots of things out there. And you've got to be careful you know, who you read as well. You need to make sure that they're pretty solid when you start because some people go way, way strange. But I'm confident that the closer and the closer and the closer time gets to the, to the kingdom of the Antichrist that the preciseness will be get tighter and tighter and tighter. And I think that uh, I look back at my life and I can see preciseness being much more precise now than it was several years ago, several decades ago, and it's just going to continue. Back to Psalm 137. Like the Edomites, those 
who, who, will, who will receive God's judgment, the same call is made against Babylon. In verse 8. And due to their actions taken against Israel, both of these nations deserve God's judgment. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Now today, both Edom and Babylon lie in waste. God did judge those peoples. And we have the mystery Babylon still coming, but the historical has been judged. And God's judgment will always be just, and his judgment will always bring him glory. And the judgment requested here is to be severe. Blessed is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's, that's kind of a hard statement for us today. But the judgments of God are just, but they're also severe. Just think about, go back into, into uh, the Bible and think about some of the severe judgments of God. How about the flood? That's pretty severe. How about Sodom and Gomorrah? How about the Passover, killing the firstborn in Egypt? We could go on and on, but you get the point. Yes, God is love. But that love does not keep his holy and righteous judgment from coming on those who oppose him. Again, that's one of those messages that the seeker-sensitive church doesn't want to talk about much today. But it's part of God. It's who he is. And his judgment comes to bring him glory. And as we see in God's judgment against Edom and Babylon, we need to be reminded that we're no better than those who were judged. We deserve God's wrath and God's judgment as well, but for some reason, God chose to reveal to us the truth of the gospel. And then he worked in our hearts, and then he worked in our minds to cause us to accept that gospel. That's an incredible gift. So how do we how do we thank him? Well, for starters, let's go to Psalm 138. It says, I will give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. It just happens that Psalm 138 is sitting right behind Psalm 137. I will give you thanks with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. This is a psalm of David. And Spurgeon says, this psalm is, quote, wisely placed. And the contrast to Psalm 137 really can't be missed when you read them back to back. Derek Kidner wrote that in Psalm 138, there is a fine blend of boldness and humility from the outset. Boldness to confess the Lord before the gods and humility to bow down before him. The first line really answers the question raised at the end of 137. How should we thank him? I will give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods I sing your praise. Now we don't know what occasioned David to write this psalm. There could have been many. There's lots of speculation. 
But regardless, it begins appropriately with a strong declaration. I will give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. And as I read that, I got wondering, what value is there to give thanks to God with less than a whole heart? Isaiah 1 is one scriptural example that we can look to portions of verses 4 to 14. Ah, sinful nation, Isaiah says. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. What to me is the multitude, this is verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs, of goats. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. How many of you want to do something that's an abomination to God? Well, serve him with not a whole heart would be a start. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. Now, from our journeys through 2 Kings, we saw what the Lord thought of the kings who led the people by partially worshiping him and worshiping false gods as well. Baal or the Asherah pole or whatever. But regardless of how they led the nations, economically or physically, they were described as doing evil in the sight of God. What was that evil? Not worshiping God with their whole heart. If you cannot or aren't trying to worship God with your whole heart, we're not praising Him or worshiping Him at all. Next we read, Before the gods I sing your praise. Now there's some debate on who the gods are in this phrase. Before the gods. Some thinking that they are the false gods worshipped by the surrounding nations. And also the, the nations within their borders that have leaked in. Others take the position that this refers to the great men of the day. Either way of trying to understand that is acceptable. It doesn't change the meaning the point is that David is praising God in front of all of them. If it's the other gods, I'm praising God in front of them. If it's the great men, I'm praising God in front of them. He does not hide his praise and worship of God. It's for all to see. Before the gods, I sing your praise. And then verse 2 bows down. Uh, it says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness for you have exalted you have exalted above all things your name and your word now verse 2 begins with a couple reasons to praise God his steadfast love and his faithfulness we praise God for who he is and the more we study God's word the more we learn about God and the more we learn about God, we find more and more things to praise and worship Him for. And how do we learn about God? Through studying His Word. From passages like John 14, 
the more we know about Jesus, the more we know about the Father. John 14, 6, 11 tells us that. And the last half of verse 2 has an interesting phrase. It says, You have exalted above all things your name and your word. James Boyce wrote that literally. This says, You have magnified your word above all your names. God's word, his promises, will not perish. One commentator stated that David considered the main way God's truth is communicated to us through his word. God has such a high estimation of his word that he has magnified it above his very name or his character, another commentator wrote. Now David, the human author, is showing confidence in God that his word will stand. His word is his bond. It's who he is. Jesus said in Mark 13, 31, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Everything God has promised, everything, or as Vody Bachman say, everything, that's everything, and everything will not pass away will come to pass. And that's what that's saying. Everything God has said will come to pass. And then in verse 3 to 5, we have the desire to praise. On that day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing the ways of Sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the joy of the Lord. Now, during David's life, there was a lot of times that he called out to the Lord, and those prayers were both heard and answered. And when God answers prayer, we are strengthened in our soul, and our trust in God grows. So when we pray to God, it strengthens us. It helps us. The completing of verses 4 and 5, by the way, will take place in the future. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. In the messianic reign of Christ. Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father this includes the little unknown people and the kings Revelation 21 23 and 24 I think this is interesting maybe we'll get into this a little bit when we get our study on heaven and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its night light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So the kings of the earth in heaven, in the eternal state, will bring glory to God. 
just like it says here in verse 4 of Psalm 138. Now this is a stark, stark contrast to a typical behavior of kings and monarchs. Spurgeon wrote this. I love his conclusion here. The way of conversion for kings is the same as for ourselves. Faith to them also comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Happy are those who can cause the word of the Lord to penetrate these palaces. And then he says this. For the occupants of thrones are usually the last to know the joyful sounds of the gospel. Because they're so stuck on themselves. Look at what I've done. And you have to give up your pride. And then in verse 6 to 8, we see a needed humility. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his, purposes for, his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So there's comfort expressed in these closing verses. Here we see, number one, the Lord regards the lowly. There's that's a consistent theme throughout Scripture. James 4.10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Psalm 18.27, for you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. Matthew twenty three twelve, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 5, the end of the verse. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That is not an attitude that our world tries to promote. Humility. It's just the opposite. But we're constantly told that pride is good. No, pride is not good. And this is what this is what Scripture says. Now the other thing we see, the comfort expressed, is the Lord preserves us in times of trouble. And as we saw when we went through all the life of David, and that seems like it's been a couple years ago now since we've done that, God did not keep David away from trouble. He didn't have a little bubble around him and go through life happy. No, David went through tough times. And we will as well. And some of our tough times will be the, the temptation that's coming to us from all kinds of angles. But 1 Corinthians 10.13 promises us God's provision where it says, No temptation has taken you that is not common to men. But God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then Romans 8.28. Jim had this this morning in his sermon up on the notes I saw. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, even the stuff that isn't fun. That was, that's not in the original. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The next thing we see is the Lord 
fulfills our purpose. Philippians 1, 3-6 says, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, and you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's going to bring it to completion. I don't have to bring it to completion. He brings it to completion. If I had to bring it to completion, I'm afraid we'd fall. I'd fall way short. So the Lord fulfills our purpose. And then, His steadfast love endures forever. Boyce said, Our assurance rests in God's eternal love. And I would add to that, it also rests in his faithfulness, as we pointed out earlier when Jesus said in Mark thirteen thirty one, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Everything that God has promised, I know I said this, but I'm going to say it again, everything that God has promised will come to pass. And this takes us right back to Psalm 136, doesn't it? Where each of the verses concludes with the line, For his steadfast love endures forever. Hopefully you quoted that to yourself a couple times last week. For his steadfast love endures forever. If you weren't here last week, go to Psalm 136 and read it out loud. Because every verse ends with that quote, that line. Into this, a guy named Herbert Lockyer wrote this. Our hope of final perseverance... In the final final perseverance of God, we love and serve. Our hope of final perseverance is the final perseverance of God, whom we love and serve, because his mercy endures forever. His work in and for us will continue until we are perfected when we see him in all his perfection. That's going to be quite a sight. So that quickly is Psalm 137 and 138. Let's pray.